Well, good morning. It's uh, or actually afternoon, isn't it? Well, great to see you here this afternoon, and I'm so glad to get to be back with you uh, this second weekend. It's been great being here. And I also want to echo a happy Father's Day to the dads who are in the room. You know, this is kind of a special Father's Day for me because it's my first Father's Day to be a grandfather. Uh, both my kids had little girls over this last year, and uh, someone appropriately told me that being a grandparent is God's reward for you not killing your kids. And I think that makes sense to me. So, um, But to, to those dads in the room, thanks for um, all that you do. As we all know, a lot of kids are growing up in our generation without any real father. So we desperately need men like you who will courageously live for God, uh, who will take up the mantle of spiritual leadership in their homes, and who will be just as intentional about raising their kids as they are about building their business. And uh, so we want to bless you and honor you for what you do. Um, The fact that you're here today says something about the place of faith in your life, and you're modeling something great for your kids even by being here um, today. And you know, there's a lot of people, I suspect, that could all do, could do our vocational jobs, but nobody else can be a dad to my kids like I can. And so that's a worthwhile um, investment of my life. So thank you, dads, for what you do. We honor you and bless you. Well, as Michael and, um, and Charlie said, we're in week three of this series called Empty. And the idea of this is that there are all kinds of things in our life that tend to drain us and suck the life out of us. So what does it look like for me to live from a healthy place, to do life in a healthy way. You know, the Bible teaches that every single one of us in the room have a soul. It's the internal, eternal part of you. Now, you may not be aware of it. You can't see it. You can't grab a hold of it. You don't see it on an x-ray, but it's real. In fact, it's not an overstatement to say that your soul is the real you. I mean, you could walk out of here today. You could be in an accident Uh, they take you to the doctor, and if they had to amputate your arm, you'd still be you. You could go to the hospital this week and get a kidney transplant, and you could have somebody else's kidney operating inside of you, but you'd still have your same soul. You'd still be you. I've even discovered that you can lose your hair and still have the same soul. You're still the same person that you've always been. Now, someday, this body is going to wear out and die. And your heart's going to beat for the last time, and they're going to pronounce you dead, and they're going to stick you in the ground. But here's the really good news. You're not really dead. Because you have an immortal soul that is going to live on in eternity somewhere. And if you're a Christ follower, the Bible says that death death is nothing more than simply your transition into heaven. So you have a soul. It's the real you. And it's immortal. Now think about this for just a moment. Think about how much time you spend taking care of your body. I mean, you shampoo, wash, wax, groom, manicure, clean, tuck, comb, paint, exercise, and all that before you came to church this morning. I mean, you spend a lot of effort trying to take care of your body. And it's still going to wear out and die. No matter what you do, someday it's going to wear out and be done. Doesn't it make sense then that if my body is here for just a few years, but my soul is eternal, doesn't it make sense for me to take care of my soul and pay attention to what's happening inside of me? 
And I like to think sometimes of my soul as this kind of invisible bucket. And when it's full and when I'm doing well, I've got more joy in my life. I'm happier. I have a sense of purpose. I'm living in a healthy way. But when life drains me and life gets sucked out of my bucket, I get stressed, anxious, sometimes irritable, angry, and I begin to live in an unhealthy way. Well, that's what we want to talk about. I want to talk about something that has huge implications for the health of your soul. And this is a topic that in all my years of preaching, I've never spoken on one time. And in 54 years that I've been on this earth, I've never heard one weekend sermon on this topic. So here's what I want to talk about. I want to talk about technology and your soul. I've, I've called my message today, Techno Danger. Now we know that everything that's ever been created can be positive, but it also has a negative. That there's a shadow side to everything that's ever been created. Anything that is productive, if abused, can be destructive. So a knife can be used as a scalpel to bring health and healing, but it could also be used to stab and wound someone. Sex is a wonderful gift when a man and a woman experience it inside of marriage. But when it's part of an adulterous relationship, it brings great destruction. Think about your words. The words that can roll off of your lips can bless and encourage people. They can edify and build them up. Or those same words can slice and cut down, criticize as a positive and a negative. And the same is true of technology. I mean, technology has opened up so many things for us, opened up whole new worlds and advanced us in so many ways. But we also know there's a very dark shadow side. We see it in sexual predators. We see it in pornography, scam artists, identity theft. It's everywhere. But I submit to you that there are more subtle downsides to technology that are more socially acceptable. Things that we accept and And yet they have implications for your own soul and for your spiritual health. I almost feel like I should start the message today like they start Alcoholics Anonymous meetings. You know, somebody stands up and they give their name. So I feel like I should say to you, hi, my name is Lance Witt and I'm addicted to technology. Because I suspect that I'm not the only person who struggles with that. But this addiction doesn't have any kind of social stigma with it. In fact, we often carry it as a badge of honor because the need to stay in can make us, to stay plugged in can actually make us feel very important. You know, it's not an overstatement to say that technology is literally reshaping our very lives. That's especially true for Jason Russell. You may not recognize his name, but Jason Russell created a documentary about an African warlord named Joseph Kony. Now, Joseph Kony is one of the most um, infamous characters in modern history, committing horrific crimes. And Jason Russell's um, decision was to create this documentary to expose Kony and therefore bring to public attention all the horrific crimes that this guy has been committing. And so part of the strategy was complete the documentary then through social media, try to get it out and get as many views as possible. So when he completes the documentary, he sends out the link to his friends who post it on their social media sites and their friends begin to post it. And in one week's time, one week, 70 million views of Jason Russell's documentary. 
Now, it completely changed his world. He was hit with this tsunami of social media feedback. And to some people, he was highly criticized. To some, he was a hero. And in the first four days, he was so overwhelmed by all this attention that in the first four days after the documentary came out, he only slept two hours. After eight days, he walks out of his house in San Diego, takes off all of his clothes, goes out into the street and starts slapping the pavement with the palm of his hands and ranting about the devil. And by the way, that video also went viral. Well, Jason was checked into the hospital and diagnosed with a a, a kind of temporary insanity. And um, he's now out of the hospital, but all of his media accounts have gone dark. Here's the paradox. All of the equipment, all the machines, the computers and our smartphones and droids and iPads, all of that that has opened up so much to us and given us access to so much knowledge, the one thing they can't do for us is teach us how to appropriately use technology someone has rightly said the information revolution came without an instruction manual so i want to spend just a couple of minutes to try to help you get a picture of the kind of stranglehold that technology is having on our culture so let me just share a few facts with you the average american spends eight and a half hours every single day in front of some kind of a screen in one survey One-third of all the people surveyed said that they check their phones before they even get out of bed in the morning. In 2010, a survey was done among American uh, teenagers, and they did some research and discovered that the average teen sent and received 3,705 texts every single month. That's five an hour, 24 hours a day, every day of the month. And by the way, I think that is probably a bit low. Preteens, so kids 9, 10 years old, are sending and receiving just under 1,200 texts every single month. Since the internet came into being, the traffic on the internet has doubled every single year. The average office worker researchers have found enjoy no more than three minutes at a time at his or her desk without an interruption. And now in the study of neuroscience, uh, neuroscientists have pictures of people's brain on cocaine and people who have a picture of their brain extended, uh, extended time on the internet and they look almost the same. So that neuroscientists now are calling the internet electronic cocaine. And now there's much more science around this because what we're beginning to discover is how much technology is actually literally reshaping our brains. We used to talk about the brain and think of the brain as kind of this this amazing computer with lots of memory. And we talk even about people being hardwired and that the brain is all these circuits. Well, the truth is, it's far more amazing than that. It's really not so much like a computer because a computer is hard and stable, but the brain has plasticity to it. In fact, neuroscience have now coined this term neuroplasticity, which talks about the fact that technology literally begins to reformat your brain. So they have this saying that says, neurons that fire together, wire together. So as you constantly expose your brain and your mind to technology and media, you are literally reshaping how your brain does its work. Well, that's 
pretty amazing and a bit sobering all at the same time. It seems to me that when the internet came out, that it was sort of like we walked into this stable and we saw this nice horse standing there and we climbed up in the saddle and took hold of the reins and began to walk around the stable. But in recent years, it's like the horse is broken out of the stable. It's now at a full gallop. We've fallen out of the saddle, but we've got one foot in the stirrup and now it's dragging us. And what we used to control now controls us. And so it's appropriate that we could even talk about uh, internet being an addiction. So here's what I want to ask is, what does that have to do with you as a Christian? I mean, what are the spiritual implications of all this? Well, I think there are quite a few, but I want to mention three dangers and some things that you and I can do about it. So here's danger number one. Technology is eroding our ability to focus on people. As Christians, we put a high premium on life because we believe nobody is ever born by accident. You're not here by coincidence or put on this planet by chance. We believe that God created you, has a plan for you, and he's responsible for your life. And not only that, but he created you in his image. And so people matter. But we see it every day how technology gets in the way of you and I paying attention to people, focusing on people. The other day I was in the Apple store and I was going to get a new cover for my iPhone and I saw this one that looked really cool. It looks like an old antique book and the spine of it's really cool looking, but it's got this flap that lays over on the top of your phone. And I said, hey, isn't that going to be a bit cumbersome when I try to talk on the phone that I've got this thing flapping right there by it? And I said, it seems like that'd be hard to use. And he goes, well, that would be true if you actually talk on your phone. And I said, well, what do you mean? And he said, well, um, the only people I ever talk to on my phone is my parents, and that's just because they don't text. But every other conversation I have, 100% of the time, is texting. And it was just this reminder to me of how we're becoming more and more virtual, more and more impersonal. I want you to watch this little commercial that kind of gives you a humorous perspective of this point. I read an article, well, I read the majority of an article online about how older people are becoming more and more antisocial. So I was really aggressive with my parents about joining Facebook. My parents are up to 19 friends now. I have 687 friends. This is living. What? That is not a real puppy. That's too small to be a real puppy. 687 friends on Facebook. Now that's living. I want you to understand something about the Christian faith. At its very heart, at its core, is this word incarnation, in the flesh. That Jesus left heaven and came to our planet and lived among us and walked among us and was present with us so that we would know that he understands this dilemma of being a human. And I love seeing that when Jesus is in the Gospels and as he talks to people, he never seems to be in a hurry. He never seems to look past people or be preoccupied. You don't ever find Jesus multitasking. He always seems to be present because he puts a high value on people. It was the philosopher Seneca who said, to be everywhere is to be nowhere. And in our culture, with so many distractions where we fill our time with multitasking and being plugged into multiple machines at once, we try to be everywhere. And the truth is, we end up being 
nowhere. And one of the challenges is that unintentionally we end up devaluing people. So here's my challenge to us. Let's learn to practice the ministry of presence. And that might mean that you need to put down your phone. I think when Jesus was in conversations with people, he leaned in. He gave eye contact. He was interested in them. He paid attention to them because he valued people and relationship. And I remember there was a season in my life when I was an executive pastor at a large church and it was pretty fast-paced and a lot was going on and I would spend a lot of time returning emails at night. And I remember sometimes my wife frustrated would look at me and she would go, even when you're here, you're not here. You ever had that conversation? Preoccupied, distracted, physically with people but not being present. But when you and I practice the ministry of presence, we'll be with people. We'll pay attention. And so in all that you need to do with your technology, don't lose the focus on people because at the end of the day, life is about relationships and about people and about the connections we have, not about how many emails we return. So it erodes our ability to focus on people. Number two is it erodes our ability to be quiet. We're losing the ability to just be quiet and alone with just our thoughts. We, we hate silence. We hate dead time. Anytime there's silence, we begin to feel this awkward uncomfortableness. There, there's a couple of passages in Scripture that I can't even wrap my mind around living in 2013. One of them is in Exodus when it says that Moses and Joshua went up on Mount Sinai and the glory of the Lord came down and for six days it was absolute silence. And on the seventh day, God spoke to Moses. Six days. Or in Job, when Job loses his kids and his wealth and his servants and even his health, and his friends come to him, and they're so overcome by everything that's happened to Job in his life that the Bible says they sit with him for seven days before they ever say a word to him. I don't know about you, but I I can't even wrap my mind around that. And then I, I think about the life of Jesus. I mean, if I'm supposed to be like him, how did he live his life? I kind of think if Jesus were to come and sit at Renaissance this afternoon and say, listen, I've got three years from the time I launched my public ministry at age 30 until 33 when I'm going to die on the cross, what do I need to do in order to launch this worldwide movement that will sweep the planet called Christianity? And here's what we would say to him. Well, Jesus, first off, you need a really cool website. And then you need to launch a fan page on Facebook. And of course, you've got to have a Twitter account. And we need to get a marketing firm involved. And we need to schedule some really large events that draw really big crowds and be very different than how Jesus actually lived his life. There's this one place in Mark chapter 1 where Jesus has been doing a very busy day of ministry, healing people, casting out demons, preaching the gospel. And the Bible says in Mark 1.35, very early in the morning, while it was still dark, Jesus got up and left. And I read that and I go... That makes sense to me. I mean, he's only got three years. He should get up early. I mean, he's got a lot to get done in three years. And he's the son of God. He ought to get up a little earlier than the rest of us. But it says when he got up, he didn't go out to do more ministry. It says he went to a solitary place to be alone with his heavenly father. A place of quiet where he could pray, reflect, think. And the disciples come to him and say, hey, everybody's looking for you. And Jesus says, yeah, we're not going back to that village. Now, there was still a lot to do, but Jesus said, we're going to some new villages to preach the gospel. And what's clear in the passage is this. 
It was in that place of quiet where Jesus got the next set of instructions from his heavenly father. And I wonder if the reason that sometimes we have such a hard time discerning the voice of God, of being clear about what's important in life, is because we're so busy, so occupied, there's no quiet, there's no time for us to be alone and to think. I love this quote. It says, it's only by having some distance from the world that you can see it and understand what you should be doing with it. And I struggle with this. I mean, I I have a Mac and on my mail, um, you know, there's this little red dot that comes up that notifies me every time there's a new email. And for me, it's like a little hit of cocaine. I just feel like I have to check it. And so I'm learning to try to unplug and I've actually turned off the notification on my computer so that I can stay focused and be quiet. The other day, I was riding on the shuttle um, at the Denver airport. I go and park my car there, and I travel a lot. So I park my car there, take the shuttle to the terminal. It's about a 10-minute ride. Everybody on the shuttle is buried in their phone, including me. And so I'm thinking about this whole issue, and I'm thinking, okay, Lance, one step you can take is just unplug on that 10-minute ride. And so I put my phone in my pocket, and I'll bet you at least four or five times in the next 10 minutes, I instinctively went to grab for my phone because that's what I do whenever I have two minutes of downtime. And so I'm learning to just sit and be quiet for those few minutes. You see, what we're creating through technology is an attraction to distraction. They did a survey of office workers and found that the average office worker checks or glances at their inbox 30 to 40 times an hour. No wonder we struggle with solitude. No wonder we struggle with time to pray and be alone. Because we fill every second with noise. Listen to these words from Psalm 37, 7. It says, be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. You want to have a healthy soul? You want to live a healthy life? You've got to learn how to be quiet. To be alone with yourself, with God. To pray, to reflect, to meditate on scripture. To be quiet. Well, let me give you the last one. The third area that's a danger for us is technology is eroding our ability to have a healthy rhythm of life. Now, we live in a world where everything that was created by God was created with rhythm. So when the sun comes up, it goes down in rhythm. The tide comes in and goes out with rhythm. Even as you sit here today, you breathe in rhythm. Your heart beats in rhythm. Music is all about rhythm. Farming is built around the rhythm of planting and growing and harvesting. In Leviticus 25, God said to the nation of Israel, every seven years, I want you to give the land a rest. There's this sense of of rhythm. And here's what I want you to understand. You were made to live in rhythm. And the rhythm is something that goes like this. Work and produce, rest and recover. Work, yes, produce. But also make sure that in the rhythm of your life, there is space for you to rest. Because if you violate this rhythm, you will pay a price. And I see it all the time. I work with pastors around the country, and I see pastors who pretend that they don't have any limits. And they just go hard thinking that they're supposed to live life 24-7. After all, we're supposed to burn out for Jesus, but the problem is you still burn out. And I see him who hit the wall because we now live as though adrenaline is our hormone of choice. And so we just press it 
and go fast and go hard 24-7, and the result is we're exhausted and fatigued, and some of us are on the path to burnout, and we're about to hit the wall. That's not how God wanted you to live. So get this principle. To have a healthy life, to live with a full bucket, you have to create space in your life. The quality of your life has everything to do with the space in your life. Noah Binche, who writes about this, says, it's the space between the notes that makes the music, and it's the space between the notes of an insane pace and a crazy busyness that actually makes the life that you want to live. And I don't know about you, but I have a long history of trying to take on too much, of overscheduling, overcommitting, pushing myself, being driven, My wife would tell you I struggle to to be still, to relax. Even when I'm on vacation, I have a hard time unplugging and relaxing. And here's the good news that I've been learning in the last few years. God has given us a gift, a strategy that will help us live a life of rhythm. And it's one word. It's the word Sabbath. Now, I don't know if you know much about that word. It just means to quit or to stop. And it really finds its roots all the way back at the beginning of creation in Genesis 2. One and two, when God created the world, it says in six days he made everything, and then on the seventh day he rested. Now, he didn't rest because he was exhausted or because he was tired or worn out from you know, creating the mountains and the ocean and the fish and the cat. It wasn't any of that. God was modeling something for us about life. And he was modeling this rhythm of work, rest, produce, recover. This is so important that God hardwired this into the Ten Commandments. The fourth commandment is about the Sabbath. And um, right up there with not killing and not stealing and not committing adultery is this issue of protecting the rhythm of your life. So listen to Exodus 20. It says, Remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy. Six days labor and do all your work, but the seventh day it is to be a Sabbath unto the Lord your God. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that's in them. But he rested on the seventh day, and then the Lord blessed the Sabbath, and he made it holy. So God says, there's this rhythm I want you to live. Now, an obvious question is, so what did Jesus say about this? Well, a casual reading of the Gospels almost makes you think that Jesus regularly violates the Sabbath, but he doesn't. What he's violating is all the hundreds of man-made rules that the religious leaders came up with that were kind of a burden around people that, that uh, was an obligation. And, and the one thing that Jesus said about Sabbath is this. Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. In other words, Sabbath is not a burden. It's not an obligation. It's not a have to. It's a get to. It's a gift that he's given us. Uh, in... Jewish history, they have this practice they call Havdalah. And on Havdalah, when Sabbath begins, they light a candle. And the candle is to remind them that this is Sabbath, so slow down. Don't work. Enjoy relationships. Take it easy. Rest. And when the 24 hours is up, they take the candle and they extinguish it in a cup of wine. And then they pour some of the wine into a saucer. And here's the symbolism that if you will do Sabbath well, it will spill over into the rest of your week and the other six days of the week, you'll be better because of it. Now, I know for some of us, we're trying to even grab a hold of this. I mean, like, there's no way 
I could unplug for 24 hours. There's no way I could take a full day off and do that. And I've wrestled with that. But here's where I've come to. It's not a suggestion. It's a commandment. And it's in my best interest. So let me give you four words that help frame out Sabbath. The first word is the word stop. What would it look like for you to stop for 24 hours? I mean, really, to not work, to unplug, what would that look like for you? The second word is the word rest. For some of you, the most spiritual thing you could do is take a nap. Now, preferably not right now, but, but later might be a really good thing because a lot of us are sleep deprived. And that's part of the gift of Sabbath is the permission to rest. The third word is the word delight. Because Isaiah talks about Sabbath being a delight. And a question I always like to ask when teaching on this is, what's life giving to you? What is it that when you do it, it just fills your tank and you're better because you do it? I happen to live in Colorado right near a bunch of mountains. And so I love being in nature. I love getting on my bike. I mean, it's so life-giving to me, and it fills me up. And God says, I want you to have experiences like that. I gave you five senses, not just for functional reasons, but also so you could enjoy what I've created. So stop, rest, delight, and the last word is worship. Because Sabbath is under the Lord. It ought to be a day when we just spend a little more time with Him. I I just linger over Scripture, or I, I pray and take a walk, or I put on my favorite worship CD and just in an unhurried way, spend a little more time with God. You know, I grew up in Albuquerque, New Mexico, and we didn't get a lot of snow there. And so when we got like three inches of snow, it would just shut down the whole city. And I remember as a kid getting up when we would get a decent snow, and I'd go into our den and turn on the TV early in the morning. And because at the bottom of the screen, they put a listing of all the schools that were closing for the day. And I remember just sitting there waiting, waiting, anticipating. And then I would see it. Osuna Elementary closed. And it was like I could hear the hallelujah chorus in heaven as we got the day off. And my mom was great about this. She never made us do any homework or chores. It was a day to do anything we wanted. Can I tell you something? Every seven days, God has given you permission to have a snow day. To do anything you want, to rest, unplug, take it easy. Can you think, it's It blows me away that it is so hard for us to do nothing. (laughs) And yet God says, you need it. So here's my question as we finish. Where where do we go from here? Well, I I love this statement um, from Sam Anderson. He says, it's just too late to retreat to a quieter time. What he's saying is, there's no chance we're going backwards. I mean, technology's not going away. We all get that. But how do you manage it? Well, for some of us, maybe the most important step out of today is you need to have a conversation with your family, with your kids, about what does it look like to manage technology. Dad, so that you can be more present with your kids. Mom, so that you can have more time with your kids or with your husband. What does that look like? How do you need to manage that? I I have a... Um, you know, some, some people that they have that basket on their dining room table and they just all put their phones in the basket when they have dinner together so that nobody's tempted to plug in while we're having dinner. Maybe for some of you, you need to give your phone a Sabbath. Maybe you need to put an auto reply on your email that says, you know what, I'm unavailable for the next 24 hours. Maybe for some of us, you just need to carve out and put on your calendar 15 minutes Just be quiet so you can pray. 
and maybe actually be with God. I, I don't know what it is for you. I'm not sure where you're tempted with this or where you get um, kind of addicted. But what do you need to do so that you can pay attention to people, so you can learn to be quiet, and so you can have a healthy rhythm of life? If you learn those three things, you will have a filled up soul and live a life that God wants you to have. Let me pray for you and then we'll be done. Lord, thank you for every person in this room today. And Lord, for all of us, it's a challenge. There's so many things to distract us, so many things that um, grab for our attention. So Lord, help us to know what's most important. Help us to live a healthy rhythm of life. Help us to know how to be still and to be quiet, to pray, to think. And then, Lord, help us to value people like you do. To not get so preoccupied that in the middle of a conversation we pick up a text message or a phone call, but we actually pay attention to people. Lord, we want to do life your way, so... Help us to live well so that we can live the life that pleases you. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. All right, thanks so much for being here. Have a great Father's Day and a great weekend. God bless you.